Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Ladies and gentlemen, strap in and prepare for a wild, wild ride. For today's werewolf is one of the most infamously devious and disgusting characters in the history of true crime. A truly terrifying beast ripped straight from a nightmare. He was known as the Gray Man, the Boogeyman, the Moon Maniac, the Brooklyn Vampire. Yes, that's right. You know who we're talking about. It's Albert Fish. The Werewolf of Wisteria. Let's begin. In 1929, the American stock market crashed, causing the Great Depression, the worst economic crisis in modern history. Banks failed, the money system collapsed, international trade plummeted, millions lost their jobs, homes, and savings, leading to widespread suffering and destitution. During this time, kidnapping became a huge criminal enterprise that was known as the Snatch Racket. The New York Times even ran a daily front page feature called The Kidnapping Situation, updating readers on recent abductions and ransom demands. In 1932, there were 282 kidnappings in 28 states, culminating in the kidnapping of American hero Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son. And in 227 of these crimes, the criminals got away scot-free. President Roosevelt declared an all-out war on kidnapping. But kidnapping was a lucrative business in a time of unparalleled want and need. While the American public were deeply troubled by the phenomenon, it could be rationalized and understood. People were desperate for money and would do anything to get it, including abducting the wealthy for a cash ransom. But what the American public could not understand, though, was when there were kidnappings without ransoms, especially of poor children who began to vanish without a trace. Who would take an innocent child for no reason? One of these children was four-year-old Billy Gaffney. Billy was the darling of his mother's eye, her everything, and she'd call him her, quote, candy boy. He'd been happily playing with another child in the hallway of the tenement house where he lived with his parents in Brooklyn. And then he vanished. When Billy's frantic father asked his friend where Billy was, the boy answered without hesitation, the boogeyman took him. Another was eight-year-old Francis McDonald, the son of a Staten Island police officer. On a beautiful summer day in July, he'd been playing ball with his brother and some other neighborhood children when he was beckoned by a strange man. Others had seen the man, a stranger, in the neighborhood, but paid him no mind. He was a stooped elderly man in shabby clothing, with gray hair, a gray mustache, and a gaunt gray face, who mumbled to himself as he stumbled about clenching and unclenching his hands. When Francis's friends looked again, the man was gone. And so was Francis. 
When Francis didn't return home, his mother and father grew frantic and began to comb the neighborhood with no luck. A massive search was called, the entire community combing the area, and a pack of Boy Scouts would be the ones to discover the body of eight-year-old Francis. He was in a pile of branches and leaves. He was nude from the waist down, his stockings and underpants violently ripped from his body. He'd been savagely mauled and, quote, atrociously assaulted, as the newspapers called it and strangled with his own suspenders that had been twisted around his neck so tightly they were embedded in his flesh. There were no clues. The only suspect, the gray man, a mysterious figure who had come and gone just like the boogeyman. Grace Bud was a beautiful 10-year-old girl living with her large family in an apartment in the Chelsea district of Manhattan. The family struggled with money, but they were happy. Her father was a porter for the Equitable Life Assurance Company. Grace was the baby of the family and had four older siblings, three brothers and a sister. In May of 1928, Grace's eldest brother, Edward, put an ad in the New York world looking for work in the country and listing their address. He wanted to get out of the city, work the land, breathe in fresh air. And to his utter delight, the very next day, a man arrived, willing to take him on. You Posting your actual address in a classified ad is a bold move. Yeah, recipe for disaster. Well, Grace wasn't there when the man arrived. She was out playing with friends. The man who came answering the ad was an elderly gentleman with a drooping gray mustache named Frank Howard. At first glance, he appeared very well-to-do in a suit and tie, a sophisticated air about him. But once he stepped inside, the family noticed that his clothes were frayed at the edges and stained. But he did have a diamond pinky ring that just screamed class. Hmm. How can you not trust someone with a diamond pinky ring? The old man spoke in a thin, papery voice. And the family all said he had a very odd laugh. He wouldn't open his mouth, but kept his teeth clenched and snorted through his nose. The man explained he'd been an interior decorator, doing well for himself with a wife and six children. But when his eyesight began to fail, he decided to take his money and invest in a little farm, which had been a lifelong dream. But his wife, well, she hated country living and left. His children were all grown now. One son, he proudly exclaimed, was a cadet at West Point. And the farm... It had been a huge success. He had over 300 chickens and six milking cows. There was a Swedish chef and five farmhands. But his most dependable worker wanted to move on, and Howard needed to replace him. The old man eyed Edward and declared he looked strong enough to work. Edward agreed and said, I ain't afraid of hard work either. They agreed on $15 a week. Then Edward asked if his friend Willie could also work at the farm. Howard examined the young man and agreed to take him on as well. The old man then said he had to run. He had business in New Jersey, but that he'd be back to retrieve the two youths on that Saturday. But when Saturday arrived, the man did not show up. Instead, there was a telegram delivery explaining the man was held up in New Jersey. But the next Sunday, 
the man arrived as he said he would, dressed in that same scruffy suit. He'd brought along a pail of fresh pot cheese and a carton of strawberries he claimed had come from his farm. You'll never taste creamier pot cheese than that, the elderly farmer told the family. I can guarantee it. <laughs> something creepy about that, man. <laughs> well, Eddie wasn't there. He was out playing stickball. But the mother invited the farmer to stay for dinner, and the old man accepted. In an odd gesture, the man asked if they still had the telegram he'd sent. And when the family said yes, the farmer took the paper and pocketed it. The old man regaled them with tales of his lucrative farm and his times as an interior decorator in Washington, D.C. The hardscrabble family ate up the stories of wealth and success. As they sat down to eat, the front door opened and in skipped little Grace, singing a sweet song, still dressed for church in a white silk dress, the same one she'd been confirmed in a month earlier. Around her neck was a string of imitation pearls. The old man stared at the child, dumbfounded, and struck silent. Slowly, he lowered his fork to the table and called for her, patting his leg and asking her to sit in his lap. The old man remarked how pretty and slender she was, then began to whisper to her, asking her about her friends and her school as he creepily stroked her hair. Stranger danger, stranger danger. Ah. <laughs> he then said, let's see how good you are at counting and reached deep into his pocket, pulling out a large wad of cash and a handful of coins. Little Grace counted the money aloud. It came to $92.50, an amount that would be nearly $2,000 today. What a bright little girl, the man declared, pushing a few dimes and nickels into her hand, telling her to go buy some candy. As Grace skipped merrily out the door to get her candy, Edward and Willie came bursting in, excited to finally get to work on the farm. But the man explained that they wouldn't be leaving just then. First, he had to go to a birthday party for one of his sister's children. He pulled out his wad of cash, slipped the boys a couple ones, and told Edward and Willie to go to the movies. He'd be back for them later. Soon Grace was back with her candy and the old man was getting ready to leave when he turned to the family and asked if Grace might like to come to the birthday party with him. He explained it was going to to be a lavish affair with cake and prizes, quite the bash, and she was welcome to come. It was going to be held at an opulent house uptown on 137th Street and Columbus Avenue, and it would be his pleasure to show the little girl a good time. Then he'd drop her off when he returned to pick up the boys. The buds were reluctant to offend the gentleman farmer by saying no. What if he took offense and didn't hire Edward? So, hesitantly, they agreed. Mrs. Bud helped Grace into her dress-up spring coat with fur-trimmed collar and cuffs, a fake pink rose pinned to the lapel, and the little girl and the gray man walked off into the gathering dusk, hand in hand, never to be seen again. God. While the other missing and murdered children had caused a lot of press, this abduction was international news. The New York Times ran a front page headline about the kidnapping. 
a little girl in her communion dress taken right from her parents by a kindly old gentleman. The address he'd given for the party didn't exist. Columbus Avenue ends at 110th Street. A manhunt turned up nothing. Authorities were able to determine where the bucket of pot cheese had come from, but that too led nowhere. They were even able to track where the telegram had been sent from and get a copy of the actual message with the man's handwriting. But it proved useless. Every lead or clue was a dead end. The police were baffled. It seemed like a professional kidnapping, but why? They were a poor family. They had no ransom money to pay. Countless sightings of a gray man were reported. Neighbors accused each other. And for a while, any gray-haired man out on a stroll with his grandchild was in danger of being accused of being the boogeyman and attacked by vigilantes. Circulars with details of the crime and a description of the elderly farmer, the gray man, were printed and distributed across the entire United States and into Canada. Cranks wrote in lurid confessions a flood of sightings poured in, all proved false. While promising leads would pop up and fade away over and over throughout the years, it wasn't until November of 1934, over six years later, that a real clue would make its way through the Postal Service. That clue was a letter written to Grace's mother. This horrifying letter is one of the most disturbing and talked about artifacts in all of true crime. The letter read, my dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went to shore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold to the butchers to be cut up and sold for food in order to keep the others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, not the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. He took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night, he spanked them, tortured them to make their meat good and tender. First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, guts. He was roasted in the oven, 
all of his ass boiled, fried, fried, stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street. Brought you hot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her on the pretense of taking her to a party. Yes, you said she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester that I had already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped off all my clothes. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. And I hid in a closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run downstairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How she did kick, bite and scratch. I choked her to death and cut her in small pieces so I could take my meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have had I wished. She died a virgin. Okay, we're going to have to pause the episode while I go shower and then throw up, or maybe throw up and then shower. <laughs> you know, interestingly, the artist, Joe Coleman, has that actual letter now. Uh, you, he does these weird paintings of serial killers. They're actually really amazing, intricate. You ever see them? I don't think so. Now I'm going to have to look it up. We'll post some, and including the one he did at Albert Fish. He's got this auditorium. It's a term actually coined by P.T. Barnum, like a museum of the weird. It's Oof. very, very macabre, but also really cool. He's got everything from old monster models, deformed babies preserved in jars that had been shown in freak shows back in the day. And he's got that infamous Grace Bud letter. Uh, while he was doing a painting, Albert Fish, he was researching the letter and he found out what precinct had it and filled out the paperwork to get a copy. And he gave the forms to the woman behind the desk, and she took out the letter, Xeroxed it, and handed him the original letter and oh put my the God. Xerox in the file. Isn't it crazy? Oh, that's just nuts. Oh, my God. He says the letter itself desired to come home with him so that it would be able to talk. Luckily, Mrs. Bud was illiterate and wasn't able to read the letter. But one of the extremely rare times... When someone is actually lucky to be illiterate. Jesus. But her son Edward did read it, or start to at least. When his startled mother looked up at him and asked him what it said, as the color drained from his face and he began to tremble, he didn't say a word, just sprinted out the door to the police station. 
The letter ended up on the desk of one Detective King in the Bureau of Missing Persons. And this guy, he's like one of those super cops. He had been ceaselessly working on the case for six years, long after everyone else had given up. He traveled over 50,000 miles trying to track down the elderly abductor, running down rumors, following dead ends, chasing phantoms. There had already been many other crank letters written, but this one seemed different. For one, the sheer viciousness and the depravity of this letter was like nothing Detective King had ever seen before. Then there were the details, like the pot of cheese and the strawberries, the distinct address. So he dug through his files and found a copy of that old telegram. He laid it side by side with the letter, comparing the handwriting. He was no graphologist, but it was easy to see. The handwriting was identical. While Detective King could glean very little from the actual letter, the envelope held some tantalizing clues. Imprinted on the back flap was a small hexagonal emblem with a single capital letter printed on each of the corners. The letters were N, Y, P, C, B, and A. Below that was an address that had been scratched out. Using his trusty magnifying glass, much like Sherlock Holmes, Detective King was able to peer into the scratched-out area and make out the address. 627 Lexington Avenue, New York City. Bam! Detective King threw down his magnifying glass, grabbed his overcoat, and headed out the door. The address was the headquarters of the New York Private Chauffeurs Benevolent Association. Detective King contacted the president of the association and was able to gain access to their files and personnel forms, including 400 membership forms. And Detective King pored over these papers for days, comparing handwriting samples. But, alas, nothing matched. He then asked the president to call an emergency meeting, asking if anyone knew anything about where envelopes could have gone. After the meeting, a janitor approached the detective and sheepishly confessed that he had stolen some stationery, but left it in the room he had been boarding in at the time. He'd since moved. The address of that rooming house was 200 East 52nd Street, room number seven. Detective King and his trusty magnifying glass were off. When Detective King questioned the landlady, describing the gray man known as Frank Howard, she said the description sounded very much like a previous boarder who had indeed rented room number seven. His name was Albert Fish, and he checked out only a few days earlier. Asking to see the man's signature on the register, Detective King pulled out his magnifying glass. Actually, I don't know if he pulled out his magnifying glass, but that's the way I envision it. <laughs> <laughs> and he compared the handwriting samples. Bingo. Perfect match. While the old man had checked out, luck was finally on Detective King's side, for he still received mail at the boarding house, and his son mailed him a check from the Conservation Corps where he worked every month. King contacted the finance officer at the Conservation Corps, who promised to alert him as soon as the next check was mailed. He arranged for New York postal inspectors to monitor the mail for any letters directed to an Albert Fish. And then the waiting game started. 
the letter arrived, and they waited and waited and waited for fish to take the bait. Uh, sorry, I couldn't help that pun. <laughs> Finally, on December 13th, 1934, the landlady alerted the police. Albert Fish had arrived to retrieve his mail. Detective King leapt into a patrol car and raced uptown to the boarding house, barging through the doors. And there, seated at a small wooden table, sipping noisily from a teacup, was a sallow and gray old man with pinched and hollow cheeks and a wispy gray mustache, dressed in a tweed suit jacket, vest and tie, and shabby trousers that didn't match. The detective closed the door behind him and eyed the old man, asking, Albert Fish? The old man nodded, eyeing him with large, watery eyes as he set his teacup down. As the detective approached, the gray man rose, slipped two fingers into his breast pocket, and flicked open a straight razor. But the detective was on him, grabbing him by the wrist and wrestling the razor blade free, shoving the old man back down into his chair, looming over him in triumph and bellowing, I've got you now! It was as law enforcement set out to discover who this Albert Fish was that the true horror began to unfold and a tale of depravity, perversion, cannibalism, filth, and degradation would reveal itself. The tale of a sexually sadistic child killer who claimed to have over a hundred victims and had murdered children in every state. A tale of a monster who would go mad every month as the moon became full, who would feast on raw meat, a man whom many saw as a werewolf. And it is here that our story really begins. Hello, I'm Mark. I'm Gina. And together we are Men's Wellness Theater. Or at least we try. I would try to survive it. <laughs> We're the hosts of The Worst, a podcast where I deep dive horrible subjects and tell the story to Gina. And I tell terrible, tasteless jokes to kind of break up the awful, soul-crushing details that you bring us. I try and you try, and that's what makes it great. Yeah, I mean, stop being upset. We are trying our best. And honestly... We're weird people. We find this makes it a little more palatable to get through the horrible details of some of the worst true crime. Yeah, because otherwise, I just want to take an ice pick to my own eardrums. I can't do it anymore. No. So if you're the type of person who finds, you know, Weekend at Bernie's the most hilarious movie ever, we might be up your alley. Give us a try. Absolutely. Just look for Mental Illness Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you happen to use for podcasts. Hamilton Howard Fish was born on May 19, 1870, to Father Randall and Mother Ellen Francis. He was named after an ancestor who had been governor of New York in the early 1850s and had served as Secretary of State for the Ulysses S. Grant administration. He was the youngest of four siblings, Walter, Annie, and Edwin. Albert's father was 75 years old at the time of his birth and his mother only 32. Yes, that is a 43-year difference. And Fish's father died 
on October 16th, 1875, when Fish was only five years old. The only memory Fish says he had of his father was a hazy image of his face and the nickname his father had used for him, Stick in the Mud. It's said young Fish was given this nickname because he was an incredibly sensitive child and that he constantly wet the bed, a habit he would continue well into his teens, something called enuresis that we see often in serial killers. I kind of attribute it to a lack of control. In another event, also attributed to many serial killers, he'd suffered head trauma when he'd fallen from a cherry tree and had a concussion. And as we'll see, he loved fire. So he fits into what is called the McDonald triad. But just to be clear, that has been largely discredited. There's plenty of perfectly normal people who suffer from enuresis. It's not a sign of psychopathy or sociopathy at all. With his father dead, Fish's mother, Ellen Francis, was now unable to care for her brood and put young Fish into St. John's Orphanage. Orphanages were notoriously brutal at the time, and Fish would later say he was beat mercilessly there and saw things that, quote, no seven-year-old should ever see. That's like some serious William Bonin vibes there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but he claims that he learned to enjoy the pain, to relish the pain and even crave it as it stirred his first sexual yearnings. This particular orphanage had a type of discipline they called shame punishment, where they would strip a child naked and beat them in front of the other children, sometimes beating as many as six naked children at one time. Fish claims he learned to not only gain pleasure and satisfaction from being beaten naked, but also in watching other children receive the naked lashings as well. He also discovered sexual gratification, not only from the screams of the beaten children, but from the Bible verses the nuns would read as they beat them as well. Verses all centered on the sins of the flesh. One thing Fish did not like was how, because his first name was Howard, all the children teased him by calling him Ham and Eggs. Ham and Eggs, Ham and Eggs, Ham and Eggs. I don't know. It's really not the worst nickname. But but Fish hated it. He hated it so much that he changed his name to Albert, which was actually the name of a sibling who had died as an infant. That's really rather creepy and unsettling to name yourself after a dead brother who died as an infant. It really is, you know. But uh, his family had a long history of mental illness. In two generations of the Fish's family, there were seven cases of extreme psychopathology on both his mother and father's side, including an uncle who was confined to a state mental hospital and suffered from religious mania and psychosis which Fish also suffered from, as we'll see. His mother showed schizoid tendencies as well, hearing voices and even hallucinating. A paternal half-brother suffered from schizophrenia, and his sister Annie was diagnosed with, quote, mental affliction, whatever that meant at the time. When Albert was 10 years old, his mother had become stable enough to remove him from the orphanage, but the seed that would become the monster of Albert Fish had been formed. 
When Albert was 12, he began a relationship with a telegraph boy who introduced him to the pleasures of drinking urine and eating feces. As he grew into a teenager, Fish began spending his weekends at a public bath where he could watch boys undress. And this type of voyeurism is actually a type of control as he's like in a safe place watching someone in their most vulnerable state. Pretty spooky stuff. He carried on his love of pain by constructing his own paddles and whips, which he would use on himself. At 20 years old, Fish moved to New York City. Life in the Big Apple in 1890 was tough. Poverty was rampant. Crime widespread. Albert made his way as a male prostitute for a while, and also as a house and building painter, an occupation he would have his entire life. He also began molesting and raping young boys, most around age six, using his job as a painter to aid him as he was able to find vulnerable children in the hospitals, orphanages, and YMCAs he was painting and lure those children into the basement. He would work naked beneath his painter's coveralls so he could easily unzip and disrobe. Yeah, the image of this old man in painter's overalls naked underneath so he can just get naked whenever he needs to is just, ugh. It's, oh, man, yeah. This is some fucked up shit, man. Very sadly, you know, he, he targeted mostly African-American and disabled children who wouldn't be able or weren't in the position to report him. And often after a rape and eventually murders, he'd pack up and move away, fleeing the crime scene. And he lived in over 28 states, traveling as far west as Montana, searching out new places where vulnerable children would be. He developed a number of other extremely disturbing habits as well. Besides the self-inflicted beatings with whips, nail-studded paddles, he would shove a rose stem into the urethra of his erect penis. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. And prance about in front of the mirror. And then after, when he was satisfied, he'd eat the rose. Just like so fucking weird. He also derived extreme pleasure from writing obscene letters. He'd scour the classifieds looking for women in search of a husband and write them vile letters. Often he'd present himself as a successful Hollywood producer, ready to offer large sums of money to women willing to perform certain services on either him or one of his fictitious sons, usually named Billy. Here is an actual letter written by Albert Fish to give you a little taste. I wish you could see me now. I'm sitting naked in a chair. The pain is across my back, just over my behind. When you strip me naked, you will see a most perfect form, right? which, which I doubt. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> yours, yours, sweet honey of my heart. I can taste your sweet piss, your sweet shit. You must pee-pee in a glass, and I will drink every drop of it as you watch me. Tell me when you want to do number two. I will take you over my knees, pull up your clothes, 
take down your drawers and hold my mouth to your sweet honey fat ass and eat your sweet peanut butter as it comes out fresh and hot. That is how they do it in Hollywood. God. Oh, Jesus. So his bachelor days were coming to an end because he was getting married. Yes, Fish's mother, Ellen Francis, found him a bride. And in 1898, he was married to one Anna Mary Hoffman. He was 28 and she was 19. The couple would go on to have six children together. Albert, Anna, Gertrude, Eugene, John, and Henry. But marriage didn't quell his wild ways. He continued to have homosexual relationships and would forever remember going to a wax museum with a gay lover and seeing a bisection of a human penis. This image of a penis split in half to reveal its inner workings would haunt him to his dying days and cause him to become obsessed with sexual mutilation. In 1903, he was arrested for a grand larceny and sent to notorious Sing Sing prison. He'd be in and out of prison his entire life. In 1910, Fish was working as a painter in Wilmington, Delaware, when he met a 19-year-old named Thomas Bedden. Bedden looked much younger than his actual age and was said to have been mentally disabled. Bedden was a transient and had worked as a male prostitute. Fish took the youth under his wing, promising to feed and care for him, and they fell into a sexual relationship. The two ended up in a farmhouse where for two weeks they engaged in bondage and sadomasochism and various sexual role-playing games. They also ate each other's feces, drank each other's urine. Fish would lightly cut the boy's buttocks and suck the blood out. At one point, Fish had the teenager bound and naked, and that image of the bisected penis came back to him with a strange compulsion. He had to see it in reality. He had to. So he took a scissor and sliced off the tip of the boy's penis. Fish would later say, quote, I shall never forget his scream or the look he gave me. Fish had wanted to kill him, dismember him, and take parts of his body home to eat, but feared the hot weather would spoil the meat and the smell would draw attention to him. So instead, he poured hydrogen peroxide over the wound, uh, slathered it in Vaseline, wrapped it in a dirty piece of cloth, left him $10, gave him a kiss, and fled, saying, I took the first train I could get back home. Never heard what became of him or tried to find out. Meanwhile, Albert's wife, Anna, was having an affair with a handyman that they had brought on as a boarder to help pay the bills. And in January of 1917, Anna and the handyman ran off together, leaving Albert and the five children. She also took every possession she could manage to haul away, including all the furniture and even the children's mattresses. So now this raving psychopath is a single parent raising five children on his own. He's also having psychotic episodes, many of a deeply religious nature. At one point, his namesake son would look while playing a game of football to see his father atop a hill in the distance, completely naked, screaming at the sky. I am Christ. I am Christ. 
I am Christ. <laughs> and, sorry. It's, it you got, it's got to laugh. You'll go crazy if you don't I laugh. know. It's, it's just insane. Like, it's, I can't. Another and, time, Fish says, John the Apostle came to him in a vision and demanded he wrap himself up in carpeting. And every full moon, Fish would be filled with the compulsion to eat raw meat, often trying to get his children to indulge in the chunks of uncooked steak as well. Can you imagine? Dad, raw meat for dinner again? Uh, and Albert's self-abuse began to skyrocket. Once, his son discovered under the sink a pair of paddles with nails embedded in them. Curious, his son examined them and saw there were bits of flesh on the nails and they were coated in dried blood. He confronted his father over it. At first, Fish refused to talk. Then he mumbled, I use them on myself. I get these feelings that come over me and every time they do, I have to torture myself with the paddles. He also began to insert needles into himself, using a thimble to push the pins into his perineum, the skin between his anus and his scrotum, and leaving them there, the flesh healing over. Walking and sitting caused agonizing pain, which he relished. He'd even experimented with pushing needles right into his testicles, but said the pain was too great even for him to bear. Oh, my God. Oh, and one of his favorite things to do... <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is a fucking hell. Was to shove alcohol-soaked bits of cotton into his anus and set them on fire. Once Albert's son peered into a room to see his father naked, furiously masturbating as he smacked himself from behind with one of the nail-studded paddles, crying out with pain, wild-eyed and panting with each strike. Fucking hell, man. At it again, huh, Dad? <laughs> but, um... <laughs> For the most part, Albert actually kept his bizarre habits hidden from his children. And by all accounts, he was a very kind and loving father, especially to his daughters who uh, would stick by him to the very end. That's just insane. Insane. Reminds you of Dennis uh, Rader, the BTK. You know, he was like a really yeah. good parent. And stuff. Fish eventually set his sights on an elderly widow with several young children named Estella Wilcox and set to wooing her. While the widow was off at work, Fish would babysit her children. He'd, <laughs> fuck, just saying that is maybe made a shiver run through me, but uh, he'd play bizarre games with the children, like Buck Buck Hands Up, which they would play every night. In this game, Albert would wear nothing but a thin pair of brown shorts. He'd turn his back to the children and ask them to hold up their fingers, then guess how many fingers they had up. When he guessed wrong, they'd have to paddle his behind the number he was off by. Then they'd play Sack of Potatoes Over, where Albert would hoist a child over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. Then they'd slide down his back with their fingernails, digging them into his skin and leaving long scratches. Then he came up with a game where the children could see how many needles they could shove under his fingernails only ending when his hands were covered in blood. And though Fish was technically already married, he and Estella were betrothed on February 6th, 1930. But he must have shown her some dark part of himself, for they were divorced just 10 days later. 
Man, I wonder what that freak must have done. And, you know, he'd go on to marry two more widows that very same year. All the marriages quickly dissolving. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows. Albert began having visions from God, commanding him to murder and sexually mutilate children. Many strange Bible verses came to him, such as Matthew 19, 14, Suffer the children unto me, and Psalm 137, 9, which reads, Happy is he that taketh thy little ones, and dasheth their heads against the stones. Mm. He also became totally obsessed with the biblical story of Abraham, sacrificing Isaac. He fixated on the gruesome narrative of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son as an act of devotion to God. Fish saw in this tale a perverse validation of his own horrific acts, believing that he too was carrying out divine commands. Later, he'd often allude to this story in his disturbing letters to the families of his victims, attempting to justify his unspeakable crimes through a grotesque religious lens. And again, he often chose African-American children and the disabled to molest and murder, believing because they were disenfranchised, no one would notice them missing. And most unfortunately, he was right. Most of these murdered children are lost to time. But we know that on July 14th, 1924, the gray man appeared in Staten Island and was seen enticing nine-year-old Francis McDonnell away to the forest, where his mutilated and degraded corpse would later be found. And on February 11th, 1927, the boogeyman Albert Fish was working as a painter for a Brooklyn real estate company when he encountered four-year-old Billy Gaffney playing in the hallway of his tenement house. Fish would later write a confession to this crime to his lawyer, stating, Okay, this is one fucked up episode, all right. I brought him to the Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone. Not far from where I took him, I took the G-boy there. Stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked up from the dump. Then I burned his clothes through his shoes in the dump. Then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked home. The next day, at about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails. Homemade, short handle, cut one of my belts in half and slipped these in half in six strips, about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs, cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was 
dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. And I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body just below his belly button. Then through his legs about two inches below his behind. I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. This I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends and threw them into the pools of slimy water you'll see along the road going to North Beach. Water is three to four feet deep. They sank at once. I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body. I liked best. His monkey and peewees and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt, and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put it in the oven. Then I picked four onions and when meat had roasted about a quarter of an hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and brown cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet, fat, little behind head. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. I threw them in the toilet. Okay, I've decided that I, this is the worst person that we've ever covered. <laughs> Uh, then Albert bought what he described as his implements of hell. Albert Fish's implements of hell were a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, and a bone saw. Ugh. Ugh. Eager to try them out, he invited Cyril Quinn, a 10-year-old boy he'd been grooming and molesting, and his friend to the apartment for lunch. But as Fish busied himself in the kitchen cooking a meal for them, the two rowdy youngsters were playing by his bed and dislodged the mattress, exposing his implements of hell. Seeing the gleaming knives and hand saw hidden there, the two boys ran from the apartment, terrified. Phew, lucky break for those kids, man. Then, in May of 1928, Albert was reading the classifieds, which was he was obsessed with. Uh, they were like the equivalent of the internet back then. And Albert Fish was like the ultimate troll. It's like looking for places to send his obscene letters to. He really got off on writing these obscene letters, man. Such a troll. Uh, this guy really would have loved the fucking internet. Can you imagine his Twitter feed? Oh, my feed? God. No, I can't. 
And uh, that was when he came across an ad that read, Young man, 18, wishes position in country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. And to fish, this was a perverse sign from God, an invitation bestowed from heaven. We can only imagine the sick things that ran through his mind. Well, well, actually, we do know some of the sick things that ran through his mind because he later said them. He, he said he planned to lure him to an abandoned house, find him, and cut off his penis. As soon as he read Young Man, his blood was probably pumping like crazy. And uh, this ad, of course, was written by Grace Bud's brother, Edward. And while it was Edward that Fish originally planned on murdering, several things happened. First, Edward was much larger and more masculine than he'd expected. Fish, of course, desired a boy. Second, Edward asked if his friend could come along, an idea which tantalized Fish but ultimately spooked him, for he didn't know if he could handle killing two strapping young lads. In the end, he decided to make a go of it. He gathered his implements of hell and wrapped the knives and saw and canvas, asking a man at a newspaper stand to hold them for him while he visited the buds with his pot cheese and strawberries. Then he saw Grace for the first time and was overcome. He'd later say he thought she was a little boy at first. Fish was enraptured and unfurled his fiendish plot right there on the spot, using the ruse of a birthday party to abduct the 10-year-old girl. Fish said he was utterly surprised, him and me both, when the girl's parents went along with the idea and let him walk out of the apartment with her. After the two left Grace's apartment, hand in hand, Albert stopped by the newspaper stand and retrieved his wrapped implements of hell. And they went to the New York Central Railroad, where Fish bought a one-way ticket for the girl and a round-trip ticket for himself headed into upstate New York. When they arrived at their destination, the Westchester community of Worthington, Albert was distracted as they exited, his mind filled with thoughts of perversion and cannibalism. And as they stepped onto the platform, the little girl pointed out that he left his package behind, his implements of hell, and she darted back into the train to grab them for him, sweetly handing the package to him. Oh, man. Sweet little girl made sure he didn't lose the knives and saw he'd use on her. Fucking hell. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, he took the girl on a path between the train tracks and the Sawmill River Parkway and down a steep mountain road to an abandoned two-story house deep in the forest the locals called Wisteria Cottage, which is how Albert Fish would earn himself the moniker the werewolf of Wisteria. No one had lived in the house for many years. It was crumbling and covered in mold, the wallpaper peeling off, the floor littered in rodent droppings, the windows so dirt-covered as to be nearly opaque, the interior dark and shadow-drenched. True haunted house, if there ever was one. Fish told the girl to busy herself outside picking wildflowers while he grabbed a five-gallon bucket and went inside. Secreted in the upstairs bedroom, Fish unfurled his canvas roll and removed his implements of hell, laying them neatly on the floor, cleaver, knife, saw. Then he undressed, later saying he didn't want to get blood on his clothes, and called out the window for the child to come upstairs. 
Little Grace came skipping up the steps of the dark and filthy house with a bouquet of wildflowers in her hand. When she saw the naked fish, she screamed in terror and howled, I'll tell my mama. Man, fuck. Then Fish grabbed her by the throat, wrestled her to the ground, and knelt on her chest as he choked the life out of her with his bare hands, during which uh, he spontaneously orgasmed twice. When he was sure she was dead, he positioned her neck over the five-gallon bucket and proceeded to saw her head off, saving as much blood as he could. When the little girl was decapitated, the werewolf of Wisteria lifted the bucket to his lips and began to drink. But he says he gagged on the hot blood and didn't drink more than a couple gulps. He then undressed the headless corpse, took the knife, and sliced through her midsection, just below the navel. When he reached her spine, he used a meat cleaver to sever it, chopping until the body lay in two. He then sliced chunks of flesh from her breast, buttocks, and abdomen, as well as her ears and nose, and wrapped them all in an old newspaper he found. He propped her body in a corner, hid her shoes in the outhouse, and stashed her clothing under a rock, then began to scrub his bloody hands and body clean with handfuls of grass, dressed and headed back down the mountain, rode to the train station. The entire event had taken less than an hour. On the train back to Manhattan, simply holding the newspaper containing her body parts on his lap caused him to have such a state of sexual excitement that he experienced another spontaneous ejaculation, his third. Back in his room, he made a stew from the flesh. He said the ears and nose were too grisly to eat, but that the other cuts had been delicious, tasted like veal. Consuming the stew had put him into an absolute state of sexual arousal, and he masturbated constantly. At night, he lay in the darkness, savoring the lingering taste and masturbating himself to sleep. He returned four days later, took the head, upper, and lower body, and placed them behind a stone wall where nature would take its course. He returned again several times with his son on innocent nature outings, but says he never went to look at the body, letting it rot there, hidden behind the stone wall. When asked why he had committed such an awful deed, Fish would reply, I never could account for it. This is obviously one of the most extreme cases of vorerophilia known. Vorerophilia is a paraphilia characterized by the erotic desire to either be consumed or to consume another person. Other examples would be Jeffrey Dahmer and Armin Maywies, a German man who found his willing victim on an internet site called the Cannibal Cafe. That case has actually been requested several times by listeners, and we may just have to cover it. The word vorerophilia is derived from the Latin vorere, to eat, and the ancient Greek term philia, to love. The term is often shortened to just vor. It's thought that this could be a part of Albert Fish's religious psychosis, that in the orphanage, while his first sexual stirrings were awakening, he tied them in with the Eucharist of Mass, consuming of the flesh of Christ. Some even believed that Fish thought he was saving Grace Bud by consuming her, turning her into a saint of sorts. 
And vorerophilia is actually more common than one may think. Many find the process of just eating in general to be highly erotic, and eating can become part of their sexual fantasies. This is known as soft vor in psychology, while sexual cannibalism is called hard vor. And Albert Fish was definitely one hard vor bastard. On December 15th, 1930, his letter writing finally caught up to him, and he was arrested for writing a, quote, letter of such a vile, obscene, and filthy nature that to set forth the contents thereof would defile the records of the court. Hmm. When police came to arrest him and search his room, they found some interesting things. One was a homemade whip, a cat of nine tails with a wooden handle. When asked about it, Fish replied, I like to whip myself with it, though I don't suppose that's anybody's goddamn business but my own. The police officers also found a rotten and moldering carrot and frankfurter. One of the officers picked up the frankfurter, smelled it, and asked him what he used it and the carrot for, to which Fish replied, I stick him up my ass. Fish was sent to the psychiatric ward, where he was said to be, quote, quiet, cooperative, and orientated, and eventually released. But Albert just could not stop writing letters. As he would say, I write as a habit, just can't seem to stop. (laughs) It's like me and you and our friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, in 1934, his letter writing, as we saw, would seal his doom when he wrote to Mrs. Budd about the fate of her daughter, Grace, and Detective King, in his magnifying glass, tracked him down and arrested him. After his arrest, at first, Fish denied everything, but eventually confessed, taking detectives to the abandoned house in Wisteria where Grace's remains lay, now nothing but a skeleton, still hidden behind that forlorn stone wall. But even after his arrest... Fish still couldn't stop writing and sent a letter to the detective who'd finally unraveled his crimes. It's a weird rambling letter, part confession, part explanation. In it, he says, A few months after I'd done that deed, I shoved five needles into my belly, legs, and hip. At times, I suffer awful pains. An x-ray will show them. Three weeks ago, I spilled alcohol on my behind and lit a match. I can hardly sit now. During the search of Fish's house, they found a leather-bound copy of Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pyme. The book is about a boy who stows away on a whaling boat that is seized by mutineers. Eventually, the hero and three other survivors end up adrift on the ocean without water or food. In desperation, the four men agree to draw straws. The one who picks the shortest is sacrificed by the others, stabbed in the back, butchered and devoured in a frenzied blood feast. The page where the cannibalism takes place had over ten needles stuck through it. Detective King wondered, could there be some truth in the strange story the old man was telling about punishing himself by sticking needles into his flesh? An x-ray was ordered. On December 28th, Fish was driven to Grasslands Hospital, where he was x-rayed, 
Scattered about the old man's groin and lower abdomen were a number of sharp, thin objects that appeared as long black splinters floating in the bright tissue between his hip bones, obviously needles, as the eye holes could clearly be seen. But while Fish had claimed to have shoved five sewing needles into the flesh below his testicles, the x-ray technician counted 27 needles. 27, man. And you know we're going to post a picture of that x-ray on our Instagram. As we said, Fish maintained somehow a good relationship with his daughters. And he wrote to Gertrude saying, You remember the needles I suffered with when we were living at 529 Franklin Street? Well, they took an x-ray of me in the hospital. I am chock full of them. This is a very revealing letter because it shows how his family was well aware of his strange habits of self-harm and degradation, but also that they were somehow considered beyond his control. He was suffering from his compulsions, the way others suffered from, say, arthritis or migraines. He also wrote a strange and somewhat revealing letter to his stepdaughter from jail, which went... Dearest, sweetest Mary, Daddy, Step Kitty, I got your dear, loving, sweet letter. I would have answered you long before this, but between x-rays, doctors, and my lawyer, I have been busy. Then you know I am 65, and my eyes are not so good as they were when you saw me last, so my sweet little big girly will be 18. On the 28th, I wish I could be there. You know what you would get from your daddy. I would wait until you were in bed, then give you 18 good hard smacks on your bare behind. Now, Mary, dear, I will get a check from the U.S. government in a few days. As soon as it comes, I will send you $20. I am not able to get you a watch but you can get one that you like. I hope, dear Mama, who I loved and still love, and all of you, are well. You speak of being at the big games. Here in New York City, there is nearly always some kind of game going on. In the public schools and all of the YMCAs, they have large swimming pools. If a man or a boy wants to use this pool, he must take off all of his clothes and go in bare naked. There is one of the largest pools in the U.S. in the West Side YMCA, 8th Avenue and 57th Street. The water varies from 3 to 8 feet deep. Sometimes there are over 200 men and boys, all of them naked. Any boy or man can go in and see them for 25 cents. Now you know well, sweet honey bunch, that most all girls like to see a boy naked, especially the big boys. You you know, my dear Mary, what the girls do to get in and see the show. Many of them have boyish bobs. They dress up in their brother's clothes, put on a cap, then go to the Y. 
Quite often a boy will come out of the water and stand so close to a girl dressed in boy's clothes that she can and does touch his naked body. Many of the men and boys know the girls are there and see them naked, but they don't care. Oh, be careful, all of you, my sweet kitties. Don't go outdoors in the snow unless you have on rubbers. Now listen, my little miss. Don't you keep me waiting so long for another of your sweet, dear letters. If you do, someday I shall come out there again and give you another sound spanking. You know where. Good God. Ugh. Guards often had to physically restrain Fish from masturbating, and once searching his cell, found rubbing alcohol and wads of cotton he'd somehow had smuggled into him. <laughs> you know what he was going to do with those. Yeah. And at one point, he took a three-inch chicken bone he'd found in a soup and sharpened it by rubbing it on the concrete floor then used it to rip at the flesh of his chest and abdomen. In March 1935, the murder trial for Albert Fish would begin, each day bringing out front-page stories of horror, cannibalism, self-mutilation, and perversion beyond belief. The defense pressed for an insanity ruling, and Fish's children were brought to the stand to describe his bizarre ways and religious mania. His son said Fish was hounded by night terrors, and would wake himself screaming, sometimes screaming the name Grace over and over and over. His lawyer declared that Fish was a, quote, psychiatric phenomenon, end quote, and that nowhere in legal or medical records was there another individual who possessed so many sexual abnormalities. Fish himself said he was willing to turn himself over to science as a human guinea pig in exchange for a life sentence, saying, Humanity will profit more by a study of my brain and body than by sending me to the electric chair. The jurors all agreed that Fish was insane, but as one later explained, thought that he needed to be executed anyway, and he was sentenced to death in the electric chair. When discussing his coming fate with a prison guard, Fish exclaimed, it will be the supreme thrill. The only one I haven't tried. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and on January 16th, 1936, at 11.06 p.m., Hamilton Howard Fish was strapped into the electric chair in Sing Sing Prison, helping the executioner position the electrodes on his body. His last words were, I don't even know why I'm here. Three minutes later, he was pronounced dead. There are wild rumors that the pins embedded in his groin short-circuited the electric chair, causing fire and flashes of light and an explosion, and that he burst into flame as electricity roared about the room. But these are nothing more than rumors. Witnesses say he died just as everyone else who rode the lightning there in Sing Sing. The boogeyman the Gray Man, the Brooklyn Vampire, and the Werewolf of Wisteria, was dead. After the execution, Fish's lawyer, James Dempsey, met with reporters and revealed that he was in possession of his client's final statement, 
several pages of handwritten notes that Fish apparently penned in the hours just prior to his death. When pressed by the assembled journalists to reveal the document's contents, Dempsey refused, stating, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities that I have ever read. (laughs) I wish we had it to read, though. I mean, come on. It's a historical document. But since we can't leave you with Fish's final statements, we'll leave you with this whimsical bit of prose penned from the werewolf of Wisteria. I am a man of passion. You don't know what that means unless you are my kind. At the orphanage they put me in right before Garfield was assassinated, there were some older boys who caught a horse in a sloping field. They got the horse up against the fence down at the bottom of the field and tied him. An old horse. They put kerosene on his tail and lit it and cut the rope. And away went that old horse bursting through fences to get away from the fire. But the fire went with him. That horse, that's me. That's the man of passion. Fire chases you and catches you and gets in your blood. And after that, it's the fire that has control, not the man. Blame the fire of passion for what Albert Herbert Fish has done. And that's it. That's (laughs) the crazy, crazy story. We'll be back next week with another of history's werewolves, though I don't know that anyone will come close to this. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I know it was a doozy. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi, howl at the moon? Contact us at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com. Ow!